0: Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daducci. And what we're doing this time round is Mad Max, which is going to include four different movies with a reference to a fifth movie, which at the time of recording hasn't even come out yet. So it takes us through decades of cinema history and also our relationship with the pop culture or shall we say, general public's interpretation of post-apocalyptic society. And these Australian movies have incredibly influenced our views about the post-apocalyptic world, for better or for worse, and also it's a chance to talk about the career of George Miller, which, again, has been going on for decades and has led to some really unusual ...and sometimes really tragic areas of history and film history as well. So this is going to be a really good one. Please come with me on this journey. So, let's do a a very personal introduction, shall we? So, I am a Londoner and when I was a kid, I'm going to guess, working things out, I think this was in 1991... I was a teenager towards the end of my teenage years and a friend of mine little shout out to francis who has and still is just super into his movies he's moved to america i don't see him very often anymore but he would create these little events or introduce the rest of us to these little events he also had a little bit more money than the rest of us so he would be able to grab copies of various movies and he was the person who got a copy of Predator so the first time I ever saw that was on a video that Francis had managed to get his hands on and other movies as well, so on and so forth but he booked a night for us at the Scala Cinema the Scala Theatre which is opposite King's Cross Station it's still there I have no idea what it's like, I haven't been there for decades, but when you hear what it was like in the 90s, it could only have gotten better, question mark. So, what they did is they had these special movie nights that started at something like 10 o'clock at night and went through until the early morning the next day. And all the movies were linked. So, I would argue, I guess, if they were to do one today, they might do all of the six original Rocky movies, which will take about 12 hours to view. Something like that would be a logical string of events. What they did on this occasion, it was about dystopian futures. So at the time, there were only three Mad Max movies, not enough time, so they put in a fourth movie and kicked things off with Blade Runner. So the first time I ever saw Blade Runner was actually in a cinema and I'm going to put it out there. I think Blade Runner is a gorgeous movie. It's an incredibly influential movie. More human than human is our motto. Once Blade Runner came out, so many other films have wanted to look like Blade Runner. But I think it's a kind of dull film. I get it's neo-noir. I get it's not meant to be action. But I Just think the story is extremely episodic and it just doesn't connect with me. I have subsequently seen a couple of other versions of it, and no one version works brilliantly. Flawed masterpiece, I will happily admit to, but it's just not my Saturday night viewing. All right, but then I got to see the Mad Max movies. Now, by then, these three films had been out for years. decade in in the case of uh, the earlier ones but the point is this is the first time I'd ever seen them and again it was an evening where things were unusual while we were there this has just suddenly flashed into my mind there was actually a Japanese film crew that were, because this was obviously one of these cult cinemas they wanted to get western opinions on who were hot directors at the time, and I just remembered I was talking about David Lynch and how he'd made really interesting films, so no idea if that ever came out into Japanese TV back in the early 90s, there is no way to hunt that clip down, but there we go, it's definitely recorded I have no idea if it aired so, while we were there to keep everybody awake drinks were served you obviously had to pay all this stuff but they needed to keep people awake so after each film as they changed all the reels they would play the heaviest of heavy metal thrash metal i believe for a few minutes in between and then we got on to the next movie what i also noticed which i think is really nice is obviously it was not a packed theater and yet it was a very large movie theater so Round about one o'clock in the morning, I noticed they quietly opened one of the fire escapes and they allowed some of the homeless people to sit there. Keep them out of the rain, out of the elements, bravo. But I guess they weren't going to catch a lick of sleep because they're about to sit through three Mad Max movies. The first Mad Max, set the scene. I watched the first Blade Runner. I'd heard loads about Blade Runner. And so I'm sitting there going, yeah. And then I see the first Mad Max movie. And that was filmed for, I'm going to assume, four Australian dollars and a packet of gum. Or whatever the very Australian cliche equivalent would be. It was clearly shot on a shoestring budget. And what they managed to get on a shoestring budget was really impressive. But I'm now in the 1990s, and this is a film from 1979... It has not aged well. Generally, and indeed, I remember Francis saying, he didn't talk about Blade Runner, but he said, just be aware, guys, that the first film is very low budget. You may not like it, but boy, does it get better in the second film. And do you know what? Francis was absolutely right. The first film, I tolerated. I respected. I get what they were going for. But then you get George Miller, who directed... All of these movies that I'm mentioning, well, not Blade Runner, that was Ridley Scott. But he did all the Mad Maxes, and I'll tell you more about his career in a bit. So, so 79 is Mad Max. Then in 81, he's clearly given a lot more money, and he creates what was originally called Mad Max 2. But because Mad Max was such a low-budget affair, it did not make a big ripple on the international scene. Most people were introduced to it with the second movie, and of course, if something's called Whatever 2, you assume you need to see Whatever 1 to understand what's going on. And actually, it starts off, Mad Max 2 starts off by saying it's post apocalyptic, yada yada. My life fades, the vision dims, all that remains are memories. I remember. A time of chaos, ruined dreams, this wasted land. But most of all, I remember the road warrior. And it's reinventing the wheel and it shows you very briefly that Mad Max's family's dead, etc. He is a road warrior, he is a police officer in this high-speed chasing type vehicle thing. And yeah, it it sort of sets the scene and you don't need to have seen the first movie. Indeed, it doesn't really lean into the fact there was a first movie, which is why in America, Mad Max 2 is just simply called The Road Warrior. For obvious reasons, it's going to increase its opportunity to actually get people to see the thing. And that's what all movies would like to be seen. So, boy, did things go bad. Bonkers in George Miller's second run at this, where we are now properly in the post apocalyptic world, where this is such a heavily influential movie. How can I say that? Because when I say post apocalyptic, I know what's in your mind. It's desert, it's an arid place, people are scrambling for resources, and everybody is wearing leather. And they've got ski masks on. And things are just wild and crazy. And there's, there's no need for this. There's no reason for this. And for the record, if you are in a desert scenario, probably the last thing you want to be wearing is black leather. It's going to increase your chances of being dehydrated. But does it look awesome? And you've got all these crazy vehicles covered in spikes, covered in animal hides, skulls attached to them. Without Mad Max, you would not have got things like there is elements of Warhammer 2000 AD indeed Games Workshop the people behind Warhammer literally in the 1990s created this game called Dark Future which was heavily influenced it's road combat and you got little cars fighting and the reason why they use the scale which I very quickly worked out it's like well that's not Warhammer scale no but it's the same scale as Matchbox or Corgi cars so you can easily convert one of your little toy cars that you played with as a little kid and turn it into part of a game thing I had this really cool car this hot rod which had this turret on the top which I called the pink lady and painted it pink and it was fine you know I just thought you know a bit of irony there That is how influential Mad Max 2 was, and to this day you get things like Rick and Morty making reference to it. The second SpongeBob movie makes reference to it, where literally they went, Welcome to the apocalypse, I hope you enjoy wearing leather. This reference that the parents would get, a little six-year-old have no idea what's going on with that, but that is how hugely influential that movie was. And then you had to wait a full four years before you got the third movie, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Notice no number here, because in America, this would technically be Mad Max 2, and to Australians, it would be Mad Max 3, so let's just cut it out and just have Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which, again, hugely influential movie. How can I say that? Well, we've got Mel Gibson, which I've forgotten to say, and I'm well aware Mel Gibson is a very toxic, very... ...cancel, very controversial type person... ...but this is one of these things where there are some people who have said and done odious things... ...but that doesn't take away from the fact that they're good in another element of their life... ...Mel Gibson is a very talented actor... ...Mel Gibson is a very talented director... And this was his breakout role. He'd also played Tim. He was also in Gallipoli. But it was the Mad Max character that got him international attention. Led to him doing things like Mutiny on the Bounty. Which eventually caught the eye of Joel Silver. And then we get him playing Martin Riggs. In essence, he is... A modern day, a contemporary version of Mad Max, he's a police officer on the edge. He is the lethal weapon of the title of the movie. So all of this is linked back to the successes of these Mad Max movies. But you've also now got a really strong female character, because who's running Bartertown, which on the side of Bartertown there's the Thunderdome, it's Tina Turner, who is wearing amazing shoulder pads and wearing a chainmail-armoured dress and singing the theme tune, We Don't Need Another Hero. We don't need another hero. Just belting it out for people to hear. So now we've got Mad Max becoming far more commercial. The first two movies were arthouse movies. So now we've got Hollywood movies with Hollywood money. And what most people say is, is the first half of the film is a really good Mad Max movie it's got everything you'd want from Mad Max only it's got more of it and it again George Miller is pouring his heart and soul into this thing and the fight in the Thunderdome I remember there was a time trying to explain this to the modern generation people going what Every big movie release would have a book version of it, so there is literally a book version of 1977 Star Wars, even though it didn't come from a book, somebody sat down and wrote it out of the script, so you get extra bits, bits that were filmed and then cut, they don't know that when they're writing the book, and also you get to feel what certain people are feeling or thinking internally, an internal monologue in certain scenes, really powerful. And I remember it was very important in the book version of Beyond Thunderdome that when Mad Max is fighting this guy in the Thunderdome, he eventually rips off, he's this huge, big, muscular guy with this massive mask on his face. And when, in the book, he rips off the mask, he sees that this is somebody who is very big and very strong but probably has the mental age of a child and fundamentally he's scared. He is an innocent that's been forced into this situation. It's a beautiful piece of writing in what is a wham-bam book and movie, but of course you don't know that in the film and you do get a look on Mel Gibson's face and you can see that the monstrous guy is actually not quite what you see, but it doesn't land quite as much in the film, I would argue. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm at Jem Daducci on Twitter and threads. Feel free to come at me and sort of say what your thoughts are. Do you like these films? Do you think that I'm completely wrong about about Blade Runner? If you do, you're not alone. I get I'm in a minority on that one. All right, okay, I'm, I'm happy to concede. It just didn't work for me. I'm not saying it's a bad film. So with this stuff, with Tina Turner and... The thunderdome and mad max being there a little sly sense of humour it's really just a great world building george miller's able to do with these films but then the second half of the film's all to do with children and he becomes almost like a prophet protecting the kids while they're being chased again by the-when the chase happens that's pretty good but overall Mad Max sort of sacrifices himself not in a dead kind of way but like once again like in all other movies he's just left alone in the desert while the people he's trying to protect get away he's an anti-hero well he's a cop after all but he does want to protect the innocent but he's willing to, to kill the guilty with extreme prejudice i.e. Judge Dret. they are brilliant brilliant movies and after 1985 that was the last hurrah for Mad Max or so we thought because then 30 years pass, and we get a legacy sequel, Mad Max Fury Road. Now, what's interesting is, particularly when it comes to comedies, they get these legacy sequels, I'm looking at you, Zoolander 2. It just didn't work, it didn't land, the magic's gone, everybody just looks a bit old and tired, no matter how many times they run the jokes. Legacy sequels, by and large, do not work. But what's interesting about this particular legacy sequel is they didn't use Mel Gibson. They went to Tom Hardy. And you've still got George Miller now pushing 80, making this movie. Nobody was interested in this film until the first trailer came out. Then the first trailer came out, and people went, oh, oh, that looks good. And what happened was, when it did come out, it was hugely successful and hugely critically acclaimed as well it was simply the best action film in years it came out in 2015 in the height of all of these superhero movies and it was great to see something grittier nastier darker bloodier where action movies in the past had literally been action had been turned into superhero wow wham splat pow gotta be rated 12 pg-13 this was r-rated there were chainsaws people bled it was glorious and i love this story i wasn't there but robert rodriguez was in an early screening of the film they were showing like 40 minutes of it he actually jumped up at one point and shouted out i'm sorry but how did you film that without killing somebody and you do get that feeling people seeing stuff that doesn't use an excess of cgi now as corridor crew which is a great youtube channel that talks about stunts and special effects and so on and so forth they always point out correctly that when people say they don't like cgi they mean they don't like bad cgi obvious cgi and what cgi can do is paint out certain things to make a stunt look even better that's absolutely fair and indeed there are digital scenes or digital scenery in Mad Max Fury Road, which you don't really notice because you're focusing on the actual physical vehicles in the front doing the actual stunts. And it is just, it's a masterpiece. It has five stars, but as a lot of people said, the entire story is they drive away from the base and then they drive back to the base. And that is the plot of the movie. But so what? It's not about nuance, this is about kinetic energy and action. The whole film, virtually, is a chase sequence. But it is a 90-minute, glorious, nail-biting, utterly captivating chase sequence. So you've got Tom Hardy being Mad Max now, and you've got Charlize Theron being a completely new character called Furiosa, who is far more capable than Mad Max. A lot of people have said it's a feminist film. It's about getting women to escape the clutches of this warlord. His his harem are being taken away, and Furiosa's doing it against all the men. She's always more capable than Mad Max himself, or Max, and Furiosa was an instant... LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. ...for the people immediately said, let's get a sequel to that. Let's do more. I want to know more about Furiosa. And so... Nine years later, 2024, we're going to get a prequel where we see how Furiosa becomes the incredibly capable general that she becomes with all the anarchy around her. And that one is starring Anya Taylor-Joy, which you know I have huge respect for. I think she does really interesting projects. She's a great actress. I've followed her career with great interest. I have no doubt that she will do the Furiosa role really proud obviously there's not going to be a mad max in that because they meet in mad max fury road and this is before that so this is going to be far more about furiosa as a character and again it's directed by george miller which is amazing we're talking about a 45 year gap between the first mad max of 1979 and the fifth film of furiosa That is amazing that he's still producing stuff. Now, obviously, I have not seen Furiosa yet. I very much doubt he's going to not put 100% effort into it, but we'll see. Maybe he gets it wrong. He doesn't get it right with every single movie he's ever done. The one film he's done in the meantime was 3,000 Years of Longing, I think it's called, which was largely about a genie played by Idris Elba being in a hotel room. Yeah, interesting, and these sort of wild stories, but it got Terrible reviews and nobody went to see it, so George Miller doesn't get it right every time. But here's the weird thing George Miller's career has taken him into all kinds of different areas, sadly for better or for worse. So, whereas the original Mad Max 1979 is George Miller's calling card, also I forgot to do a little shout out. I keep talking about the other person in the movies, and the person I absolutely have to mention. Mad Max 2, or Road Warrior, is Vernon Wells. Now, Vernon Wells plays... He's not the main enemy because there's this guy in a ski mask, because of course there is, wearing leather chaps where you can actually see his buttocks hanging out the back. This is so weird. You know, this makes no sense whatsoever. But George Miller had a vision, he went for it. And Vernon Wells plays the main henchman, and he's wearing american football style shoulder pads and he's got feathers in his hair and he just looks wild and crazy and he plays it to the hilt if you don't know who he is he plays bennett in commando the main bad guy against arnold schwarzenegger where they have that fight at the end where he looks a bit pudgy and he's wearing the string vest and again he plays this completely crazy obsessive guy and he does it so well. In the 1980s if you wanted a big henchman who was big mouth but could also perform some of his own stunts Vernon Wells was the go to guy. So but with George Miller as I said he did these films five films over a 45 year period while he's got to be doing some other things as well but what might surprise you is that after all of this blood and violence and kinetic energy and, and deeply cynical and bleak view, nihilistic view of the future and post-apocalypse, you might be surprised to hear that he was the director of Babe and Babe Pig in the City. That'll do, Pig. That'll do. As some people, some reviewers pointed out, in Babe, Pig in the City, there's this strange fight scene where people are on bungee cords and it did call to mind the Thunderdome experience. It's like, so we're getting Thunderdome, the kids' version? All right. But the original Babe is just one of the... There, there is no cynicism in whatsoever. You cannot tell that the director of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome also directed Babe. He knows what needs to be made, and it is beautiful. The Sheep Pig, which is the original name of the movie, or the book, I should say, was then turned into Babe, the movie, and it's just delightful. You can show it to any six-year-old, and they'll be whisked away, but as an adult, you'll also recognise this is a well-put-together movie, which is why I ended up getting a sequel. But he also did both Happy Feet movie. You know, the ones voiced by Elijah Woods about a penguin that likes to dance. And again, that got a sequel. So certainly George Miller is varied with his films. But I do have to say that sadly, he also directed the Twilight Zone movie in the 1980s. Now, if you don't know why I'm suddenly pausing is because the twilight movie was a terrible tragedy there was a scene involving a helicopter and there was an actor called vic morrow now vic morrow if you don't know what the twilight zone is twilight zone outer limits were these 1950s 1960s tv shows that were each story was a self-contained story and it had a clever twist to it it was a sci-fi story something like that there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. Really clever, really good. Both series created absolutely classic moments, and so there was a movie in the 1980s with fresh new stories in them. Some of them were inspired by some of the earlier stuff, but it was an anthology series. And George Miller in this, he directed... scene which involved Vic Morrow. Now Vic Morrow for years had been scared of helicopters and in the 1970s he'd actually said that any time he's in a scene with a helicopter he would want a million dollar life insurance clause to be put into his contract and when somebody asked him why he said I just had this vision that I'm going to die in a helicopter crash and that's why I want to make sure I look after my family basically. So Sadly, he was right, because there was this sequence of this crashing helicopter that was being filmed, and Vic Morris said at the time, he goes, should I get a stuntman to do this scene? He goes, but what's the worst? It'll just kill me outright. And unfortunately, he was completely accurate. And obviously, when people are making movies, it's all make-believe. Nobody should be put in a difficult position. Nobody should feel like they're being manipulated or harassed or hurt in some way, and certainly not being killed. But that's exactly what happened to Vic Morrow. It shut down the the filming for a while. When the movie came out, that was the only thing everybody talked about. It it was like, is this even worth it? Now, if you don't know that, you're still going to sit there and go, that's a pretty good film. And is it George Miller's fault? He's the director. He's the guy supervising the whole thing. But... At the same time, it's also worth pointing out that, you know, other people were involved. Health and safety did exist in the 1980s. When you put all of that together, that's a terrible tragedy that's also on his CV, but also a sign that when he is filming utter insanity in something like Mad Max Fury Road, no, nobody did die while it was being made. And so, got huge respect for George Miller. People don't talk about him enough. People talk about Spielberg and Scorsese and Kubrick, and yeah, they're they're all amazing directors. But ultimately, you would not think the person who would direct Mad Max, Fury Road, would also have directed Babe, would also have directed Happy Feet. These are very different films to fit in someone's head, and he's still doing it, even though he's way past the time when most people might retire from their work. So I have huge respect for George Miller. But as I was saying, particularly with the Mad Max movies from... particularly from the Mad Max movies from the second one onwards, we get this very clear vision of humanity has gone past a nuclear war, which has been changed at certain points into, like, an environmental catastrophe. But either way, we're seeing that there just aren't enough resources. These people that clearly had come from civilizations who had created huge art and highly complex societies, Well, when you take away the energy, when you take away the food, as the saying goes, a society is only three meals away from anarchy. You take food away for 24 hours and people will start attacking each other and grabbing stuff. And there are a number of thinkers, economists, etc., who say that we're not far off wars being waged over water because fresh, drinkable, clean water is something that is becoming increasingly hard to come by with our more thirsty and thirsty societies. Water is not obviously just used for drinking, but it's also used in manufacturing. It's also used, obviously, in terms of sanitation as well. So as we get more human beings, we're just using up more clean water. Maybe we should, should start using more seawater for something if you're on the coast your toilet will flush just as easily with salt water than with clean drinkable water why are we using clean drinkable water to just flush away our sewage maybe we should use as the term goes grey water so you drain your sink after you've done some washing and then that goes into the toilet and that will help preserve more water for the stuff we really need it for, i.e. drinking, or irrigation as well. If you start getting pollutants and contaminants into the water that goes into our food supply, it can go all the way back up to food supply and we can get sick from it. So, if you like, what we've got is a very heightened reality version of these warnings that when I was a child doing geography in school back in the 80s, we kept hearing about acid rain. Because that was genuinely a thing that was out there in the 1980s. There were so many pollutants in the environment that rain would sometimes fall as children. When you hear about acid rain, you think, oh, you know, it's acid like concentrated sulfuric acid going to burn through cars and things like that. No, it's got a lower pH than normal, which will start affecting the ecosystems of rivers and lakes, which again could have catastrophic impact on us. So do you know what? Scientists fix that one that is why today when kids go to school they do not learn about acid rain anymore but i remember a program back in the 1980s it was a science program and somebody to get rid of a fly put out some bug spray and started spraying it out of a can and then people go oh no you're under arrest and the whole skit was done about california had just brought in laws to reduce CFC emissions. And so therefore all these sprays had become illegal. CFC, by the way, stands for chlorofluorocarbons, which again, I am aware modern listeners, uh, people under the age of 30 might go, what's one of those? But there was this hole that was being, it's insane explaining this stuff because these are examples where we have fixed our environment. And so with the sketch in the show, because it was so early on in this conversation, it was done as almost a comedy sketch, which was saying, do you know what? Californians have completely overreacted here. You know, what's, what's the harm of a little bit of hairspray or bug spray or whatever? But of course, time and science proved the Californians absolutely right. And so CFCs were banned throughout the world. It turned out they were eating through the ozone layer. What's the ozone layer? It's a layer of, what is ozone for starters? I find this fascinating. So the oxygen that you breathe is O2. Ozone is O3. It's a form of oxygen, but with the third molecule or the third atom, I should say, in the molecule, it means that it's actually corrosive, but it does a great job of absorbing infrared light from the sun. And so this massive, gigantic hole was created in the ozone layer, which is this invisible layer above us right now that protects us from UV radiation. And it was forming, it was even coming over Australia. It was was starting to affect Australia. So we we now have George Miller linked back to George Miller and Mad Max again. So good news, everybody. Good news, everyone. The ozone layer hasn't quite got all the way back again, but with our reduction and almost total banning of CFCs, the ozone layer has been allowed to repair itself. So that's a bit of a success story there. But of course, nowadays, we're talking about carbon emissions, carbon footprint. After Mad Max 2 had come out and I'd seen it, I actually saw it again on TV, and it was there was a time on BBC Two where they'd have a cult movie and it would be introduced by somebody, like a film director or a film critic, and giving you a 15-minute talk about why you should appreciate it, or watch out for this, or isn't it interesting? And this particular person was saying, you've got a lot going on in Mad Max 2, but it was actually a very modestly budgeted movie. So, yes, you do have gas-guzzling machines there and cars driving around, etc. But the thing is, if it had been a full-on Hollywood production, it would have been even bigger than that, massive. So, his argument was... Mad Max 2 is more environmentally friendly than you might first think. Very clever, you know, wonderful sort of thing that a reviewer might do. But they have a point in the sense that we need to wean ourselves off petrol vehicles. And there is now this push for heat pumps rather than gas boilers and electric vehicles rather than petrol-driven vehicles or at least hybrids, etc. I'm aware that this is controversial and expensive just to let you know yes of course I want to get rid of my gas boiler I want to do something for the rest of the environment but a new gas boiler will probably cost you £2,000 a brand new heat pump will cost you at least £6,000 and depending on how your house is set up it might actually cost you a little bit more electricity wise to run than the cost of the gas From the boiler, so it's very easy to say you want to be environmentally friendly, but with cost of living crisis going on at the moment, do you have a spare four thousand pounds difference plus all the extra you're going to be spending each year to run it? I don't have an easy answer for you there. Maybe the answer should just be simply do it, Jem. But have you done it? You hopefully you'll take my point. So. Having these conversations about the environment and the future and resources is absolutely vital and we should do that. But what's interesting is whenever we talk about post-apocalyptic world or post-crisis world, because of stuff like Mad Max, there's the little, I'm going to say devil in all of us, which thinks, you know, I kind of like having a leather outfit on, driving a car with covenant spikes with a sawn off shotgun ready to take down those raiders on the hills over there there's that little image of like well quite frankly mad max is cool i think all of us there's a little bit for all the guys out there there's a little bit of mad max in all of us and all for the ladies out there there's furiosa in all of them oh fun fact by the way and i know i've mentioned this in the other one that there's a an episode on a million ways to die in the west the comedy the western And in that, you've also got Charlize Theron. She's got a lovely head of hair. That's a wig. Because she was still growing it back after she had to shave her head for Mad Max Fury Road. 100% commitment there, Charlize. You got huge respect from me there. So, yes, we absolutely need to be improving the future. We... Are not going to be wearing leather, and when you look at other far more serious post-apocalyptic stories, such as *The Road*, starring Viggo Mortensen, where he's going along with his son in an era after disaster, and and look, there are other post-apocalyptic movies. There are loads of zombie movies, obviously, and TV shows, etc. as well. There's, so society once again has collapsed, and the ultimate story or point to those things is. The zombies might be scary, but there's nothing scarier than other human beings. We can be really nasty to each other. So all of these are trying to make the same point, that maybe we should try and avoid the crisis in the first place because human beings aren't very good when there isn't enough to go around. So, slightly bleak answer. Oh, and and with The Road, I always love the review in Empire Magazine. Empire Magazine, if you don't know, British movie magazine that does reviews and articles and so on and so forth. Actually, my favourite is Total Film, and do feel free to listen to their podcast. There's a great podcast. Empire's podcast, I find unbearably unfunny and deeply smug, and everybody just chuckles to what the editor says. Sorry, you're not funny. Anyway, but I do, with Empire, at the end of all of their reviews, they just have a one line review, which can be extremely pithy and fun. For example, you've got Fast and Furious's Fives, tough on nuance, tough on the causes of nuance, no notes, superb. But then with the movie The Road, which, like I say, is a far more mature and and serious look at the breakdown of society and a man trying to raise a son in the middle of all of this chaos, (laughs) the review was takes the word bleak out into a field and beats it to death. Yeah, that's why I've never bothered watching The Road. But interestingly, when I heard that Viggo Mortensen was doing a post-apocalyptic movie, I thought, oh, more Mad Max-y kind of stuff. And then the more I looked into it, oh no, it's not that at all. So again, it does show you how much the Mad Max angle of post-apocalyptic has changed all of literature, TV, movies, for the last 40-plus years That's it from me, and as always, another episode coming soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.